millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we talk about the government versus universities. And you ask us, what do politicians' afterlives say about them? We've had a number of questions from listeners for this episode of the podcast about free speech on campus and the government's relationship with universities. And this sort of comes off the back of some outrage about an Oxford college holding an event with Ken Loach, the the film director, who has been accused of anti-Semitism in the past. And Stephen, you were looking into this, weren't you? What actually happened there and what's it actually got to do with government policy? Yeah, the slightly weird thing is the kind of the latest government announcement on this issue, kind of like sits across this kind of slightly awkwardly in a, a way that doesn't necessarily cohere at all, right? In the, the Jewish Society at Oxford and a bunch of other people were protesting the invitation of Ken Loach, who, in addition to his long career as an esteemed filmmaker, has made a variety of remarks and actions that some people find deeply discomforting, of which kind of the biggest is his championing of a play which depicts Hungarian Jews colluding with the Nazis in order to do the Holocaust, in order to gin up support for the state, for the creation of the state of Israel. Yeah, it turns out you you can't try and bring that kind of stuff to stage and then blame the opposition on it on a Zionist lobby that is far-reaching and well-connected to every party without being accused of anti-Semitism these days. It's political correctness gone mad. But the government's official, well, I say the government's official position, right? The government's advisor on anti-Semitism, John Mann, has written a piece for the Jewish Chronicle saying, no, not this is great, but no, this should go ahead because it's, you know, free speech on campus, etc., etc. Separately, Oliver Dowden has written a letter to the common sense group of conservative MPs about so-called woke history. You can't see the deeply contemptuous air quotes I just did with my hand, but rest assured I, I did. I mean, it is very hard to pass what Oliver Dowden's reply actually means. I don't know if everyone is familiar with that meme of someone replying to something saying, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to read all that. I'm happy for you, though, or sorry that happened. Because that's very much the vibe of Oliver Dowden's intervention. And he's basically gone, learning about the past is great. We should be frank about the past. But we also shouldn't airbrush or maybe condemn the past. But we should learn from the past. We should be proud of the past. Maybe I might at some point say that you shouldn't get funding 
if you don't do this learning from the past. But it's not really clear what type of learning from the past that I want. And I think it, I think it sort of speaks to the the central problem the government's got in itself with this issue. But actually, I think you could probably actually say this apply this across a large chunk of the policy piece, which is the this is not a government which has a very clear idea of what its idea of the good society is beyond one in which we are not in the EU. The other thing which is, yeah, we're being cited when people talk about it at the moment is Amber Rudd, who was invited by a, a university student society and then was with 20 minutes before the go, this, the university society became aware of the Windrush scandal, which I, to be honest, do struggle to pass a bit. So I don't think these two things are the same because... One is a university society inviting and then uninviting a speaker, something which is completely within their rights. And there is, I'm sorry, there is not a free speech question to, I th- it may have been the model UN, it may have been the university politics society or current affairs society, but you know, some society of that type, right? That society choosing to invite and then uninvite Amber Rudd, while slightly embarrassing for them because of the tight turnaround time, is not a free speech issue. It's just a student society arranging itself how it sees fit. Ken Loach being invited to a, to a collegiate university to speak is a free speech issue. My personal view is that because a college is also a student's home, it is different to someone being invited to speak at a faculty or and, and is obviously different, again, from a student society. But it is at least trickier, right? And there are a variety of answers than the free speech and academic freedom on, on college campuses gets you if you sort of plug that question in. But the Amber Rudd example, which is, is the one being used in several papers today, right? the thing I'm confused about is what would happen if, when that happens again, was, is the university meant to say, no, this student society needs to reinvite Amber Rudd and members of this student society need to turn up and listen to Amber Rudd? I mean, how would that work? And the answer is all of those questions is we don't know. The government doesn't know. And I think that is why the the like free speech on campus stuff has just got into such a mess because really what most of the MPs who talk about it want is not to be at briefs they find boring, i.e. the higher education brief or the culture brief, and they want to be at a briefing they find a brief they find more exciting. And that is basically the beginning, middle and end of it. Yeah, there was a there was a story in the Telegraph over the weekend about this, as there is periodically, I find, of of the government you're sort of trying to engage with the free speech on campus issue, as I've put in inverted commas as well. And it sort of pops up every now and again with new kind of, with these new kind of initiatives or policies that never really seem to come to fruition. And you're not really sure whether or not they're proposals or whether they're actually going to be written into law. And I just find it it is sort of weekend newspaper fodder until, you know, it actually happens. And then, of course, like you've been saying, Stephen, what's actually going to happen as a result of some of these things that they're saying they're introducing? So the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, is supposed to be announcing some new powers. So there's going to be a free speech champion for students, apparently, to defend free speech and academic freedom on campuses. And then there's another idea of strengthening existing laws to promote free speech in universities and you're just like this is kind of woolly language and I don't really know what what those laws would look like or what their enforcement would look like you know what does it mean to change the law to ensure student unions are subject to the duties to promote free speech I don't know I don't really know what that would look like in practice so to me it kind of feels like 
more of a policy for for headlines sake rather than something that's genuinely going to change things because you like like you say what does it look like in practice if a student union or a student society decides to uninvite someone or faces a lot of backlash from the student community and you know decides not to run a certain event you know as these kind of controversies tend to go what what happens then you know what does the free speech champion for the office of students do about it i mean it's quite difficult. It's, you know, it's quite difficult for some some external body to force the student society to change its uh, schedule. These things tend to be sort of quite chaotic and ad hoc at the best of times. And I don't know whether or not that would be providing people with real freedom if you were sort of imposing on them certain events that they had to run or certain ways they had to do things in, in, in their schedules. So it doesn't really make sense to me. And because of the sort of way that these stories are trickled into the weekend papers sometimes and you don't hear about them again for for weeks afterwards, it kind of suggests to me that it's a it's an attempt by the government or at least whoever's briefing these things to keep a sort of low level dipping the toe in the culture war alive while everything else is going on just to just to gauge whether or not a war on woke is the kind of thing that captures people's imagination and kind of is to the benefit of the government so i do think it's maybe a little bit cynical in that sense because there's still that kind of push and pull within the conservative party of how much they should in, they should use the culture war for their reputation and for, for their electoral purposes as well. So I wonder if it's just kind of flying the flag and, and sort of floating the idea and seeing whether or not it sticks. I, th- I suppose my main feeling on the, the free speech on campus discussion is just that it often seems to me to be a bit misunderstood and sometimes maybe willfully misunderstood in that, like Stephen was saying, no one has you know a God-given right to be invited to, to speak at some random student event uninviting Amber Rudd a 20 minutes notice is rude sure but it's not it's not a major free speech issue she you know and and I think that that principle really can be extrapolated to all of these issues that no one really has a has a right to be appearing on tv giving their opinion unless you know there are certain rules around the representation of certain political parties and and certain quotas around that on the BBC and so on but basically beyond that no one has a right to be on TV giving their opinion or a right to an invitation to speak on the radio or to be invited to a certain society you know everyone has a right to be able to express themselves freely but they don't have the right to that invitation or that platform and I feel like the idea of no platforming is often just really misunderstood because yes, I suppose it is about picking and choosing which views you hear from and when and in what contexts. And in that respect, people think that it, it amounts to just not hearing from people that you disagree with. Whereas I think it's probably more fruitfully looked at as a sort of, as an editorial question that so often when people quibble with who's being invited to a certain thing or the kind of prominence or platform that they're being given. It's sort of within the context of who else is being invited and the kind of, and the balance within that, which is not dissimilar to the discussions that we often have about the balance on the BBC or how certain debates are represented. So for example, like when I was a student, I was quite involved in this sort of thing, as you can imagine. And, you know, I was one of the people who protested when Marine Le Pen was invited to speak at the Oxford Union. Well, Marine Le Pen has a space to share her views and have her views debated all the time. 
I don't think that there's a serious risk to Marine Le Pen's freedom of speech to not being invited to speak at the Oxford Union. But I suppose the the risk in, in that one is that it's a very old debating society and it's accorded quite a lot of prestige. And I think I suppose that the principle there is, you know, if you're inviting Marine Le Pen, who are you not inviting for every time that you have a far right French politician speaking? Are you hearing from anti-fascist groups? Are you hearing from great Muslim rights, human rights campaigners, you know, really interesting Muslim women. I think at the time that that happened, there hadn't been a Muslim woman speaking at the Oxford Union for years. And in the context of, you know, the Islamophobia perpetuated by some in Marine Le Pen's party, that seemed like a sort of an editorial question. Who are you going to hear from? Who are you not? Where's the balance? And the real problem was just the kind of prestige that she would be accorded and the legitimacy by inviting her to a quite prestigious black tie debating evening. So there was the big protest outside, which did kind of frame her her appearance at the Oxford Union, but it did go ahead. And the main result was the pictures, as you would expect, of her entering this prestigious debating chamber, which is really, really beautiful. People clapping and smiling and her with just a big beam in her face, dressed up in her evening wear. That was the main result of that appearance rather than, you know, someone debated her really well and suddenly, suddenly Marine Le Pen's position in France has been, you know, completely destabilized. You know, that obviously didn't happen. I think it's just within that context that these things should be viewed. You know, like no one has a right to an invitation Certainly my experience of university was that it was sort of the most mind-expanding, stimulating, debateful time of my life, more so than, you know, or probably just the same as working in politics. But certainly I don't feel like the fact that people were having these conversations around balancing your panels and thinking about who's given, who should be given a platform more, who's being accorded too much legitimacy. I don't think that thinking critically around those things and thinking actually we could do without having Marine Le Pen at the Oxford Union. I don't think that, that those kinds of things did any damage to the academic freedom at university at all. And even my main memory is while there was that discussion in the media, even at that point, around you know freedom of speech on campus I just remembered like going into a tutorial once and our tutor who's a great authority on French existentialism just a great lady was saying that there was a new I can't remember exactly what this legislation was but the government was bringing in new sort of terrorism checks on students at university and the the head of our college had a piece in I think the Times that morning expressing his concerns over that and its implications for academic freedom. I think that there was a real concern around freedom of speech and freedom of expression on campus, but it didn't look like the one in the press. Our really senior academics and and really brilliant people weren't thinking about it in those terms, but more the curbs that the government was placing on on freedom of expression in other ways. This is the thing is, I think there are a series of things that do worry me in terms of free speech in universities, but they... I was about to say largely, and then I think you know, exclusively are about higher education as a labour market for a variety of, of ways, right? One, the fact it's an insider-outsider labour market. Many academics have precarious contracts. That, of course, does not create an environment that is conducive mm-hmm. to, to openness, the ability to, to say and publish what you think without fear of social or economic censure. A variety of 
responsibilities under under prevent which do have implications for academic freedom you can think that they're perfectly reasonable implications but they nonetheless exist whereas yeah this kind of well i think the thing i think is fascinating so one of the reasons we're talking about it is obviously it's recess even i have an upper limit to how much i can kvetch about cladding but i think it does speak to me to the big question of this kind of culture war stuff which is I just don't believe anyone actually cares enough for this to become an an electorally salient and useful debate for a party of office to have. I just think they end up looking a bit daft and marginal. I just think it's the kind of thing that when I hear a political party talking about it one way or the other, I'm just like, do you not have more important things to be getting on with? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I really think that that's true. I, I don't see it as a sort of thing that riles up and rallies the base like I think some people briefing some of these stories seem to think. I mean, surely some of these stories just confirm what people sort of generally vaguely think about university, whether they've been to university or not, which is, oh, yeah, you know, students protest. You know, they have their ideas there. They, they that, That's just sort of one of the things that people think that students do when they're at university and something that they've always done. And there's not really any evidence that it's, that it's becoming sort of more extreme one way or another. So I do think it, it either just validates what people already think about the university experience or, like you say, it just sounds a little bit eccentric and marginal. You know, when I was at university, we didn't have the word no platforming then. And we had a thing about whether or not to ban the sun from the student union. And, you know, these things have always been happening. But I can imagine now that kind of thing being painted as a freedom of press issue. when at the time it was just like, do we want to spend some of our budget on this paper that not many people read here? Yes or no. You know, so it <laughs> it kind of feels like it's being whipped up into something that it just isn't, which you know most of the time the public can can see whether or not there's a there's an authenticity or something genuinely of concern in issues that political parties row about and I don't think that this is one of them yeah I'd be surprised if it's sort of a a useful tactic for them in future to to go particularly hard on on this issue you see the thing is I would wonder if it actually is a quite popular subject because it's sort of interesting and non-threatening in a way Certainly, just my experience of speaking to people in in their sort of 50s and 60s and 70s is that they are quite interested in the attitude on campus and sort of more generally the attitudes among young people towards people that they disagree with. Given the way certain newspapers lead on this, the Times has a sort of has an editorial model that is quite driven by traffic and prior interest. So it it publishes so many stories around trans rights, partly because people on the editorial team take an interest and view that as a priority, but also because it does so well traffic-wise. That's why there are so many pieces published that way. It sort of reinforces it. They, they collect data on which pieces do better, and, and they are very much informed by that in their future editorial decisions. And I think that it, this is maybe a similar one where it probably it is interesting, it's, and it's maybe easier to think about and have a nice chat about or a bit of a, dis, a debate about than a bigger question like what to do about social care. I think that Lots of people, I mean, I agree, probably not, you know, not the masses, but I think probably a lot of people in certain age brackets and demographics are fascinated and low-key concerned by the idea that students can't bear to hear from Amber Rudd because of the Windrush scandal, for example, and they're kind of intrigued by that and they don't recognize that from their own experience 
and they think, you know, well, what is the world coming to if people can't bear to hear from Amber Rudd, you know, former Home Secretary? And like, I think that in some ways it is interesting. I, I think it's, it's A, not really anything to worry about. You know, those people do go on to jobs where they spend their entire lives debating conservative politicians. I, I bet that so many of the people who didn't want to invite Amber Rudd to that random student society will go on to spend their careers debating conservatives. And also it's not really clear what the government could do about it or should do about it or if it's any different to the past. But I think it's sort of low-key interesting, isn't it? But I think that that's then it kind of, it comes full circle. It's sort of interesting, but not really that important. It's not a sort of earth-shattering question the way it's sometimes portrayed. But I think that probably if you take the kind of shock and horror out of some of the coverage, it is kind of interesting. And I think there's a fascination with young people in parts of the media, because it's sort of like you're watching to observe generational change in real time. I think it's it's almost just sort of mildly amusing and, and easier to contemplate than some of the bigger questions. So I think obviously you know, it is, to use a phrase I really strongly associate now with the Lib Dems, because it's the complaint one of their members made about one of their policies being a talker, i.e. something that you have it on the table and all people do is talk about it, despite the fact that it's not really an issue that you particularly want to have to talk about. But I think the thing is, I think it's a bit unwise for political parties to pose questions to which they don't have answers. Mm. Seeing as the the weirdness of, of where the government is on this issue is that it, it does not have a remotely consistent kind of theory of things it's for theories of things it's against right yeah whenever you try and turn it into concrete policy you end up with the sort of word salad of the oliver dowden letter my assumption is this kind of weird hangover that i think we still seem to have at the moment in not only the way that politics is covered but also in the way people think about politics is we're still in this hangover from an era when um what the opposition parties did mattered at all which obviously it did from 2010 to 2015 because of the coalition and it did from 2017 to 19 because of the hung parliament but it's quite difficult, I think, to make free speech on campus a big issue. One, because I think although people find it interesting, I don't think they care all that much. But as a forward offer for 2024, we have a majority of 80 and we haven't been able to do anything about this problem. Please vote for us. Doesn't, to me, make sense? <laughs> That's true. It really should be. We had a majority of 80 and then no one snubbed Amber Rudd anymore. <laughs> If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. Us. So this question is, I have been watching the celebrity best home cook and once again it dawned on me what a normal, likeable character Ed Balls is. So my question is, what went wrong for the two Eds while they were in charge? And what should Starmer or other politicians learn from the way they were perceived by the public, which was quite different from what we have seen since 2015? So I will admit to being a viewer of the celebrity best home cook. And to be honest, it is quite a compelling program, not really because of Ed Balls's participation, but because it's one of those rare cookery programs where lots of the people on it, particularly at the beginning, because they do get eliminated, actually just just can't cook. (laughs) And so you do get some quite enjoyable, chaotic results. And also it's, it's sort of vaguely social distance. So you have Mary Berry watching their attempts at making omelettes from a balcony with like with opera glasses, which is really quite bizarre and enjoyable. But yes, Ed Balls is on it and he's one of the by far best cooks on the programme, which won't really be a surprise to people who remember the days when he used to boast about making lasagnas and things while he was still a politician. But yeah, he's always been one of those politicians that likes to boast that he's got a rich hinterland. Um, and there was a very enjoyable clip on one of the recent episodes where each of the sort of cooks left on the program <laughs> had to do a little video about their progress with with their families and he's on a walk with Yvette Cooper and she's just so obviously trying to say nothing <laughs> in the clip and you can just see her exasperation like do you have to do every single reality tv program opportunity that comes up but yeah it is true that the perception of him has changed since he went from politician to sort of tv personality And he does come across well. And I suppose the difference is, why do people not notice someone who was sort of supposed to be a bit of a bruiser in politics and obviously lost his seat and uh, and was at the top of a Labour Party that lost that 2015 election quite spectacularly and so wasn't a particularly successful shadow chancellor in terms of his electoral prospects, why do people go from not wanting to vote for for someone like that into office to sort of enjoying their performances on lighter programmes and noticing their personalities come out? And we know the same thing kind of happened to Ed Miliband in that, you know, his podcast after he stopped being Labour leader, Reasons to be Cheerful, I think it's called, became very popular and people started seeing his personality come through and noting, noticing that he was quite funny and amiable and then was sort of like, why didn't you show us this when you were leader? You know, you betrayed us. And I wonder, you know, I suppose the question, this question gets to the heart of that dilemma for politicians, which is how much do they show of themselves and how much is it perceived by the public as authentic when they're politicians and how different that can be when they're not trying to prove something and they're not trying to win people over. Because I actually thought personally, and I've written about this before, I find it quite distasteful sometimes that politicians who have failed in office and perhaps not, you know, been particularly (laughs) successful, then go and sort of remake themselves in this harmless sort of jovial image because it you know as a voter I I, I don't know I I find it a little bit deceptive I don't don't like it I don't like the fact that politicians can can go and do that and expect everyone to love them again and that people generally tend to fall for it I don't know whether it says too much for me about how about how perhaps they're able to mould their image which I find maybe a little bit disturbing but it's not something that I generally enjoy watching Apart from, obviously, I do watch this programme, but it's locked down, so don't judge me. <laughs> so the, the interesting thing is, is that Ed Balls still isn't popular, 
this to me is the thing I, I continue to find fascinating about the discourse around Ed Balls being popular now. He's less unpopular, right? In 2015, he was, you know, by a huge margin, the least popular polit- active politician. While I'm not for a moment suggesting that I don't think Ed Miliband's own unpopularity and, and, and the real fears and concerns some parts of the country had about him as Prime Minister, particularly his ability to stand up to the SNP, etc., etc. I'm not saying these weren't real factors, but Ed Balls's unpopularity was, I think, definitely as big and potentially as big a factor. And it does kind of show this weird way that the memory cheats. Then, you know, every so often I will see people suggest entirely straight-facedly, including people who were covering the 2015 election, what Labour needs is a, a figure of the the prominence and, and public standing of Ed Balls. And it's just like... <laughs> Ed Balls undoubtedly was hugely qualified to be Chancellor, but as a candidate for Shadow Chancellor, he was a disaster. But his approval rating is still lower than Keir Starmer's now, who obviously is at the centre of this sort of weird supply-side political crisis, where basically, (laughs) as far as I can tell, a large chunk of the people who do politics are, I'm bored of lockdown, maybe the problem is the Labour leader. But I think that's another reason why these people do come across better afterwards, which is that well, it's easier to come across as a nice guy when you're... Now, this is where the fact I don't watch the programme is going to show, where you're, you know, baking a cake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> baking a cake, excellent. Boom! Yeah, you got it. I am, I am <laughs> you don't on, need to watch it now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's easy to come, come across well when you're baking a cake. It's easy to come across as... And actually, these, these are also all things that are true about Ed Miliband. Things, right? so it's easy to come across as being funny and interested in other people and warm and all of that stuff on a podcast where you pick the guests and you choose the terrain. Also, when you're when you're paired with a really like charming, funny comedian who who's like your your best mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> being the leader of the opposition is actually difficult. It's a bit like and. I feel like people, from when I say I really don't mean this as a negative judgment on Jess Phillips, think that I'm just saying that to be polite. I genuinely don't mean it as a negative judgment on Jess Phillips. And I actually really wish more people understood this fact. Jess Phillips, someone who was in pretty much all of the papers, had glowing coverage of her uh, from even people who are traditionally quite Labour hostile when she was a maverick Labour backbencher. Now she's doing the much harder yards of shadow domestic violence a brief where there's cross-party agreement not over over means of how much you spend but about ends and so as a result she has a much lower profile and that in microcosm is is why you know kind of former politicians suddenly seem more impressive right they they drop down to a to a lower level to an easier game and i think that's kind of the main the main thing right that these people seem more impressive because they're no longer playing a, an easier game Yeah, I feel like it maybe speaks to the wider challenge where ideally you would be as likable as Ed Balls baking a cake or Ed Miliband on his podcast with with his mate as when you're on the Andrew Marr show making making the case for your policies. And I suppose that's sort of the challenge for all politicians to try to stay human and to retain some of that individuality and personality and so on when you're doing frontline politics. And I suppose it's sort of constraining in two regards. This is actually something that you said to me, Stephen, within the past few weeks, that, that politics is a team sport. And I think that's one of the things 
that produces the constraining effect of politics. It isn't just that you're kind of trying to hit the right notes or you have a more complicated pitch to make regarding a certain policy or that journalists are giving you a tougher time. It's also that something that you could say that would benefit you personally, make you look a bit better, a bit more human in a particular interview isn't really available to you as an option because you're trying to make the whole team look better so you can't even if you're privately aware that you know I suppose an example would be the recent vaccine policy from Labour like by the time Rachel Reeves was on the Andrew Marr show discussing lots of other things but also that it was plain that Labour shouldn't have said that key workers should be moved up the priority groups really that that they kind of got it wrong in terms of where in the pecking order that should be and whether it was definite that those people should be prioritized in that way or whether the JCVI should just look at it. Even though Rachel Reeves might have come across as much more human if she'd been like, yeah, to be honest, we got that wrong. Or yeah, to be honest, I don't I don't really agree. I think it wouldn't have been good for Labour overall. She would have been undermining all of her colleagues who've been making the case for it for days and it would have just prolonged it as a story. I suppose that that's, it kind of encapsulates the challenge of frontline politics. It's something I'm just so aware of particularly because most politicians, whatever party they're from, come across, I find, much better over coffee than they ever do when you see them on TV or in any sort of public setting. Even in a lot of cases, they come across much better on doorsteps than they do making speeches. Some are are brilliant speakers. I think probably someone like Emily Thornberry comes across at her very best when she's on stage but there are lots of people who are just more personable one-on-one and so that's the big challenge really of, of how you kind of try to retain that but I think I also wondered specifically because this this question was about the two ads is just whether whether Labour has a particular problem I've, I've been thinking about this recently because Rachel Reeves in her interview, sorry, this is the Rachel Reeves show. I'll get over it and find someone else to keep talking about in a week or two. But she was sort of saying that maybe she felt when she was shadow work and pension secretary under Ed Miliband, that she said that that was maybe it wasn't the right job at the right time. And I think she implies that she was maybe a bit too young to take on that brief. And she says that she'd be a bit more careful about what she what she says now and she thinks that she's a better politician now but then also when I interviewed Andy Burnham last year he was saying you know the quote was Westminster makes a fraud out of people you know you're told what to say and you're told what to do and you and you end up not knowing what you're about or or words to that effect and you end up not really being true to to your own values or what you came into politics for and it just struck me because those two in particular said that it made me wonder if maybe Labour has a bit of a problem with nurturing talent in the party, not in terms of recruiting it, but all these people who were probably seen as like the next generation after New Labour, who in many cases worked as advisors or were sort of involved in the New Labour years, or were just brought in like Rachel Reeves later on, and she, she moved from the Bank of England and and from the private sector to stand for parliament like the talent is brought in but in in all of their different ways all of those politicians are a little bit jaded none of them have been in government unless you know they served under Gordon Brown or or you know 
I suppose Andy Burnham was in government, but you know they haven't since, and they all feel a little bit disappointed by their political careers and all talk about sort of not being true to themselves. And maybe that's just an inevitability in politics. But it just made me wonder, you know, how do you within a political party make sure that people are promoted at the right pace, like not too slowly and not too quickly, and that you kind of try to harness their personality and what makes them unique as best you can. And actually, I think that the example that Andy Burnham gave of someone who gets that right is Lisa Nandy, who is now one of the most prominent spokespeople for Labour. So she's, you know, she's doing frontline politics and she's playing it as a team sport and trying to make the whole team look good. But he he sort of talked about how she grew closer to her constituents in Wigan and away from Westminster the longer she was in the Commons. And she manages to put things in the language of the concerns of her own constituents and and how she has worked out a policy for herself and for her own values in a way that I think is quite convincing. It's the thing that makes her such a good communicator for Labour. So I suppose for all the ones who struggle to be charming in frontline politics, there are the ones who, who manage it a bit better. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. We're also now on YouTube. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.